0: Answer your question briefly. The yarn Bazaar is a purposeless marketplace where we are trying to kind of solve the problem of broken supply chain and working capital constraints in textiles, but specifically to yarn. So the idea is to connect a yarn manufacturer with a consumer directly, solve for their pain points and accordingly help, you know, become a partner in progress for both of them. Welcome back to Spinning Values, a podcast initiative by on Synthetics. You're listening to episode 7 in this podcast we talk to change makers involved in initiatives and innovations that are transforming the textile industry today in this episode we talk to one such change maker who is disrupting the industry like no other it is none other than Pratik gardia the founder and ceo of the yarn bazaar this startup was featured on the shark tank india and is currently taking the textile industry by storm in conversation with Prateek is our very own Kartik Chaudhary from Inkscape Media. So without further ado, here is Prateek Gardia
1: Hi Prateek, thanks for doing this. We have been trying to call you on this podcast for a, a very long time and you were traveling and all that stuff. And thanks for taking this time out from your busy schedule and coming to this podcast uh, by BKLON. It's called Spinning Values.
0: Look, thank you so much for inviting me and my apologies, we're going to do this earlier. Excited to be here.
1: That's completely fine. So uh, Pratik, I mean, we have all seen the Shark Tank episode. We've known a little bit about you. But uh, I don't think people who are listening uh, know much about your childhood, your growing up years. Uh, so why don't we start from there? How was your childhood? Where did you grow up? What was the kind of education you had?
0: Interesting question. Uh, so see, basically, uh, my father has a family business in textiles. It's a small uh, business, but just operated by him. So, uh, he was the youngest of all his brothers, uh, grew up in his native, which is a small town called Junjun in Rajasthan. Uh, being the youngest and growing up in a village, you know, during that time, uh, of course, uh, he was the most notorious kid never into studies so at the young age of 15 he ran away from his village to nepal uh, joined a sari shop there as a salesman so that's how he started his journey shifted to calcutta started a commission agency business in textiles but primarily focusing on fabrics then moved to bombay uh slowly you know uh, graduated to a young uh, family manufacturing business so you know how most uh, traditional family setups in India, you know as a young kid, you are always expected to spend your uh, vacations in office, Ya Dukan depending on the kind of you know setup your family has. So you know my journey was no different. Uh, you know since school days, my vacations, college vacations were always in office, sitting next to dad, you know looking at him do his business. Uh, I I have known most of his clients from a very very early age. So, I wouldn't say I knew textiles from an early age, but at least I had the opportunity to get an exposure into that space from an early age, right? Um, I was always told that, you know, the f- business my father has built on his own, although the extended Gadia family has always been in textiles, but my father's business is something that he's built. So, I was always told that I have to take care of that. So, the journey was always supposed to be that, you know, I spend some time there after my graduation and then do like an FMB family managed business program from the likes of either SPGen or, or uh, NMMS. So, you know, in line with that, uh, you know, narrative, I full-time joined the family business after completing my graduation, which I did from Mumbai itself, uh, Mumbai, Uh, spent about a year there. And that's when I realized I can't do this. So I was completely, uh, I mean know was the right word for it. But having spent one full year in that business, uh, I realized that that was not my calling. I was always more attracted towards the startup side of things. And this is about 2011. So I read an article by Paul Graham, the founder of Y Combinator in the US, got really attracted to that and got, you know, uh, this startup bug. Very difficult for me to convince my family that, you know, I want to not pursue the family business. I want to start something on my own. Because my father is a great salesman, and, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. unko connect karna bahut difficult there. So finally, that happened. Uh, went to Warwick, did my master's in innovation and entrepreneurship. A very practical course. We didn't have any exams. The idea was to work on one business model for a year, kind of shape that up, and then start that. So you know that's how my childhood has been. Uh, you know, fairly in the family business, but also you know, uh, you know, like, like I mentioned about my family background, my mom was always you know being the only son. I have to be like the master of all trades, right? So when growing up, I was part of every sports I could play. So school football team, center forward, uh, captain of cricket team, did athletics also for a while. So sportsmen like all over there. Uh, very active in college also, you know, college festivals. Created two festivals of my own. Uh, had a band when I was growing up in 2006 to 2008. We used to play Metallica covers. I'm a big metalhead uh, since I've been growing up. So, yeah, I mean, being, uh, I mean, try to do whatever I could in the limited time that we had, apart from, you know, school and colleges.
1: Okay, amazing, amazing. So, okay. So, I mean, I good you told me that you would go and visit your father's factory because I was going to ask you that, you know, how much you reward So that we already now know that, okay, you were visiting his factory and probably you saw the machines and you understood a little bit. Even subconsciously, sometimes it happens, you know, even when you're there. You kind of pick up on things, uh, you know, which you, even you don't know that you are doing it and later only in life you realize, okay, you know, I mean, that can happen. So, okay, so, TK, you went for education and you came back and what made you think <clears throat> that this industry is ready for disruption? Uh, probably a massive disrupt. So, I mean, where I was coming from, I know, I probably know because we work with this industry that it, it has been a family, traditionally a family run business. So, but what was it that made you think that, okay, this is industry that is ready for a massive disruption? See, one is that you know about the industry, but I'm sure there are other calculations that go into it. So my question, my, my focus question is, what are probably few things that made you realize that, okay, this industry is ready for a massive disruption?
0: Sure. So just a small correction there, Uh, the family business that I'm mentioning about, we don't have any factories, Uh, we get job work done. So I definitely grew up, you know, in factories where, you know, we would get our job work done, but yeah, of course, as you said, uh, it's not just textiles in India. I think textiles globally is family uh, dominated, right? Look at the massive large luxury global fashion brands also. All of them are family operated, and then got acquired by, say, a PE or a large group, and then got consolidated there. But mostly globally, it's the same culture. Now, of course, you know, being family operated has its own challenges and has its own advantages, also, right? Uh, As far as disruption is concerned, uh, so see, change is the only constant, right? Uh, You know, when I came back, I wanted to definitely start something on my own. That's why I went to Warwick to do that particular course. But somehow, you know, my dad being a great salesman, he again, I'm to join the family business. So I spent about six years there. And the next six years that I spent post my master's in the family business, I was mainly looking at yarn sourcing and fabric production. While doing that, I was facing a lot of issues with respect to yarn sourcing. right? some technical issues, some supply chain issues. But I wouldn't think there would be any order which, you know, we would not get any issue or that would run very smoothly. So doing that day in, day out for years, you know, every week, every month, you know, for six years, finally, it came to a point where I got slightly frustrated with, you know, the fact that how the supply chain was completely broken. So it was more of an empathetic journey. It was not like it was a very logical, calculated decision. Ki you looked at a few business models, you look at the opportunity, the market size, the time and all of that. It was fancy journey. Nahi tha. It was clearly a very empathetic journey where I felt that I am facing this problem. And definitely, this has to be, you know, the same sentiment across, you know, the value chain. So that's how the yarn bazaar journey started. It was definitely not a calculated approach, but because the pain point was so high, and you know, yarn is very, very—it is it's the building block for textiles, right? You look at any end product, whether it's a clothes we wear, which is part of the fashion industry, or whether it's your curtains, bed sheets, or pillow covers, which is part of the home furnishing industry, or let's say technical textiles like the car seat covers, or maybe the chair you're sitting on or you go to a restaurant you see table mats which are you know textile fabrics or your dusting cloths, your carry bags. So textile is all around us and when you look at any of these products it's nothing but yarn. Right, The t-shirt you're wearing, there's yarn it's a Yarn it and hardly component. So because yarn is a building block it was very clear to me that we have to start solving for yarn and not fabrics or raparists because the family business was in fabrics. So it was merely, uh, uh, you know, your own pain point that you feel that, you know, a lot many others would have the same and definitely the supply chain is broken. So it is time for us to start kind of, you know, solving for that broken supply chain problem, whether the industry is ready or not. I think, you know, we've seen multiple examples globally, whether it's with the likes of Airbnb, you know, today Airbnb is fairly present in India. So we also know about it, but how the journey started is this failed thrice. Can you imagine the founders started it thrice? They failed and they still were very persistent about it because the market was definitely not ready, right? The consumers were not ready, the hosts were not ready, the entire accommodation space was, you know, dominated by hotels. Right? People who had certain inventory, which were, you know, given as a corporation. So the concept of Airbnb was very, very different. Nobody was ready. Nobody knew what that model is about, how that works and all of that, right? There's a massive threat. If I'm, for example, if you are a host. I'm a guest, right? I book a room in your house. How do I, uh, you know, how can I be confident about my safety? Or for that matter, anyone, anywhere in the world. Correct. So sometimes when you have a large conviction, I think it doesn't matter if the market is ready or not. You just go for it.
1: Amazing. Okay. So I don't think I've ever heard any startup founder say that it was empathy. That was the reason, you know, so that's really good to hear. And it, I mean, it it has those Indian values behind it also, I think. So okay, so uh, Acha to you uh, now point has come where you have probably uh, chalked out your path and you have realized okay this is the industry ready for disruption. Uh, then a lot of people have ideas, but where it I mean where people lack is the execution. So how like so ek kam karte. Before we come into execution, let's just get, jump into Jan Bazaar. So why don't you tell us what is Jan Bazaar? Say for somebody who doesn't know anything about it okay that's an interesting take yeah
0: uh, in that case i would say that yan bazaar is a purpose right we're not a company we're not a business we are actually a mission uh, you know like i mentioned about my background i've seen my father built whatever we have today because of this industry and not just him if you look at indian uh you know industry i mean indian businesses most of the larger groups we have today whether it's the mirnas you know the Ammanis, adanis Most of these guys started the journey with textiles. So textiles is very deep, right? It's not, I mean, it's one thing to say Roti makan, which we, you know, we've heard millions of times since we were kids, you know, basic necessities, essentials of humankind and all of that. But if you look at it globally, uh, you will find many people without any food or without any shelter, right? But it's very difficult to find someone without any piece of clothing. And the emotional connect is so deep that, you know, when a new human life is born, you know, when a new human kid is a uh, kid is born, the first foreign element they interact with is a textile fabric. So it's very, very deep, right? So when, when you know I got t- tired of you with know, the supply chain problems while doing yard sourcing for our business and the concept started. Initially, you know, as we discussed earlier, we knew that the market may not be ready. you know, it won't be easy, it's gonna be very challenging. But what really kept us going is that we, we had a vision defined from day one, which is we really want to organize this large unorganized industry. Textiles in India is highly decentralized, 80% plus is SMEs, right? Across the violation, whether it's ginning or yarn manufacturing, or fabric or apparel, any of that. So when you have such a large industry with such large economic impact, with massive employment, massive export numbers, but most of it being dominated by the top 20% only, the vision was clearly defined. Right. Uh, business models kept changing. I'm sure it will continue to keep changing. But the idea was always that it's a very purpose-led marketplace. We really want to promote textiles globally. We really want to encourage the right growth of textiles. Right. That is why you know we we do certain activities which has nothing to do with our business model. Whether it's a podcast we do, our newsletters, you know, some of the initiatives we do. We recently started with a new initiative for World Environment Day, which is promoting sustainability. Now, sustainability in India is a very, very small market, right? From a business model, it makes no sense right now. But we still do it because we know it's the right thing to do. And we can only do all of that because it's a very purpose-led marketplace that we are building.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: So uh, to like answer your question briefly, the yarn bazaar is a purpose led marketplace where we're trying to kind of solve the problem of broken supply chain and working capital constraints in textiles, but specifically to yarn. So the idea is to connect a yarn manufacturer with a consumer directly. Solve for their pain points and accordingly help, you know, become a partner in progress for both of them.
1: Okay, uh, got it. So now say, uh, just so, sort of delve deeper into your, the product and what Yan Bazaar is. If I am a textile manufacturer, uh, old company never had, uh, you know, uh, wear withalls or never had that motivation to brand myself or to, you know, uh, market myself. How can a Yan bazaar be a value add in my life? And with just a second question stemming out of it is, I mean, we have seen that sometimes family-led businesses, even these, it's difficult f- to convince these people also to sort of tell them that, you know, you need a change. Maybe you need a brand for your thing. So how do you sort of solve for that problem?
0: Sure. So in that case, mostly you are our ideal target audience. So <laughs> okay. if you're a fabric manufacturer who's been running the business, say, for a few generations, right? You may be a small uh, business setup or a large business setup. Typically, the tangible outcomes you want from someone you're sourcing yarn from is number one, great quality, number two, at right price and number three, timely delivered to your factory, right? These are the top three tangible elements you would look for. So, As a sourcing platform and as a managed marketplace, the first thing we kind of assure you is that if you're sourcing through us or see, there's no, there's no uh, compulsion, right? There's the reason why we do not have any membership or any voting or fees is because we want to give them the confidence without locking anything on day one, right? So the idea is that you may share your yarn coverage with next number of suppliers. Please also do share with us. We will try our best to assure you the right price at the right quality and timely delivered to your factory. But what we really, how we really do it and how we really empower your businesses. So, say, uh, let me take a you know, step back a little and take a very uh, name and example. You're feeling thirsty, you walk into a store, you ask for a bislery, right? The store may not have bislery, but they have kinle. So you have no other option but to buy kinle because you're thirsty. Right? Mm-hmm. Similarly, in most legacy industries, or most traditional supply chains, when you reach out to a supplier for a certain yarn requirement, every trader or every agent is only representing X number of uh, manufacturers, X number of products. So what they offer you is definitely amongst that basket, right? So hmm. for example, Kinley in this matter. But the problem is that all of different fabric manufacturers, different weavers, or different knitters have different machinery setups, right? For the same machinery setup, your fabric requirement may be different. So if you were right. to open your wardrobe, you will see 10 shirts, but the 10 shirts, each of them have a different quality. Each of the manufactured on a different machinery. Right, so today when you reach out to your suppliers and you know you get three or four different offerings from different suppliers, traditionally how you would take purchase decision is you will just supply the prices and the quality and then take a purchase decision. So mm-hmm. let's say you receive quotation between 300 rupees to so 305 rupees, min max. right? Most buyers would uh, take a decision with respect to the lower price offering, which is 300 in this case. The efficiency of that yarn on your machinery may be let's say 85%. Right? Whereas once we understand your machine setup and your family requirement, we can recommend you a product which may be slightly more expensive in terms of the absolute value of the product, let's say 303 rupees, but if the efficiency of that on your machinery is 95%, it ends up being much cheaper and not just price uh, advantage, but because the efficiency is high, you are able to reduce your production loss, you are able to fulfill your customers' order on time. So that's the kind of insight we also do.
1: Okay, so I understood your uh, model. I understand the uh, the benefits that it has. My question is that, uh, do, like, how do you reach out to these uh, manufacturers? Like, do you have an in-house team that does that? Or is it just organic or uh, taking cue from that is like, just tell us about your growth and how how, how it has grown from when you started and now.
0: Sure. So, you know, we were discussing this earlier. Uh, we've shifted to Bangalore very recently in February. Hmm. Until we were in Mumbai, uh, we've never had any sales team. We've never had people on, you know, as feet on the street meeting with clients or with suppliers. In fact, most of our high value transacting buyer and supplier had not met anyone from our team and we had a very small team until now. So I think I was very lucky that when I was about to start the Anwazar, someone I had met and I used to meet, you know, random people just to get some wisdom from each of them. One person had told me a very, very novel advice, which, you know, I still have it ingrained in me when it comes to building a business. He said, and I quote Prateek, uh, don't focus on building 100 customers, focus on building 10 fans. 10 fans will give you a longer and much larger business than those hundred customers because that leads to customer advocacy, right? So that's how we started the idea was always you know creating a phenomenal customer experience something that you know will, 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 will be very delightful for them which will convert into customer advocacy then leading to word of mouth so initially most of the buyers and suppliers we got actually ended up referring us to some buyers would refer us to, to, to other our- buyers other suppliers supplier would do the same so the network effect kicked in which okay. also allowed us to stay lean, stay frugal without, you know, building a very large sales team across
1: all of that. Okay, amazing. So it's it's organic and you trust more on organic rather than, you know, rather than pulling people into it, you'd rather have uh, uh, testimonials and successful projects being undertaken which spread the word and word of mouth. And that's always considered the best, uh, uh, you know, marketing strategy across all the industries. So, 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 you know, uh,
0: It's like, uh, you know, in any transaction, there are two behaviors, either it's a buy or it's a sell, right? Uh, Mm. What, you know, we were discussing earlier is we've never believed in selling. We want to create a position where people buy from us, you know, that can only happen if, you know, so for example, you come across an ad campaign, the likelihood of you buying into that product is very low. But if a friend of yours or someone you really trust recommends you another product, the likelihood is very high.
1: Uh, I completely agree so one question that i have always asked myself also and you know more we worked with textile and it's a genuine it's like a question that i had you know does do brands matter in in manufec- in like textile manufacturing or is it heavily commod commoditized and what is your take on it does it does it even matter for a company to create a brand of their own and uh, like that's a probably a question out of the yarn bazaar purview but but you have been in this business since years so what i want to i'm curious to know what is your take on it
0: See, uh, if you were to ask anyone who's leading a textile business of course, you know, uh, you know what kind of reaction you would get. But if you were to ask all of them one question that you in the market, any product, any service or you're buying any product or any service online on Amazon or any other websites or Dunzo or wherever you are, right? what are you buying? Are you buying into a brand or not? I most likely people are buying into a brand, right? The mobile phones they are using is an iPhone, right? It's, it's a brand. The cards they're using is a brand. Everything we, from the moment we wake up in the morning, you know, from the toothbrush we're using to a toothpaste we're using to our shampoos and our, you know, body uh, washes, anything. I mean, everything is a brand, right? But Mm. what happens is the moment we walk into the office, we forget all of that.
1: Mm.
0: Right now on the same question, uh, when a weaver is buying a yarn, let's say a cotton weaver, right?
1: Hmm.
0: There is a very high likelihood they will ask their supplier that right? Why wow. is that happening? Because for them, tyrant material is perceived as a good quality material and they don't mind paying a price premium for that right? because they know that quality consistently high hmm. I don't have hmm. to worry about quality Get it? So if that so, behavior already exists in our individual lives and in our businesses also, that does reflect that brands do
1: matter, and it is very important for you to build a brand. Get it. So what we are coming to is that yes, for everyone listening, if you are a textile manufacturer, brands do matter. So work on it, and you know, create that uh, branding. It's absolutely important. So I I completely agree with you. Now tell me one thing. Now we are probably getting into the second half of the uh, thing, and you know. We'll probably start winding down after this. I mean, textile industry seems, from the outside, it seems like a very boring industry. Okay, so you are a young guy in this industry from a different space. Okay, you have the te- technical angle, tech angle, startup angle, which probably makes it more interesting. But uh, and, and and it is a family-owned uh, business that we have already established most of the time. But is, if there are young people, because there are a lot of students who watch this, you know, lot of people who are doing textile engineering and, you know, textile design who listen to this podcast. So, I mean, as a young guy, what is your advice to them? How can they make this this journey interesting? Uh, If somebody has to set up a manufacturing company, uh, yarn manufacturing company, can he do without? uh, Is this the right time for him to do it? Because it's a capital intensive industry. It has been a traditionally family owned industry. Can a new person come in and set up a textile plant, or for, for new people, what do you gen, what what would you want to tell them about this industry and how can they probably they can find their careers in it?
0: Sure. So, uh, see, number one, it's a large industry, right? Whenever you're building a new business, the top three elements, at least, you know, this is personal to me. You know, some may have a uh, different opinion. But for me to start any business, three elements are very, very important. Number one, the market size has to be huge. Imagine if you're winning a business for a market size, which is as small as 10 million. And 10% market share maybe be low to so 1 million market size is a very small market size, right? So textile is a very large market size. India is about $200 billion roughly. Right. Number two, it's a highly unorganized space, which means there is a massive opportunity to enter and kind of, you know, become a streamlined solution. Right. And number three, the market profiles are decent. It's not a fully commoditized. I know that most people in the industry, believe it's a commoditized industry, but if you start looking at balance sheets of, you know, large players, you will realize that there is massive beta levels, uh, you know, sitting there. So Hmm. these three elements make textiles very, very attractive. Now, of course, we've already discussed that it's largely family owned, you know, it's very decentralized, all of that. But if you've seen the last two years in a global behavior, you you would have noticed that there are multiple startups across the world coming in the textile industry. There's a there's a startup called Smartex which is basically doing AI sensing for uh, fabric manufacturing, right? Which helps you uh, you know prevent any defects in your fabrics, which is then leading to lesser landfills and all of that. So there are so many great innovation and textiles happening globally. I think it's it's not just that you have, have textile because of you know the large markets and all of that. It has to be a manufacturing unit. It could be a manufacturing unit or it could be a service provider or an enablement to the industry. Everyone has heard of a brand called H&M, right? It's a large global fashion brand. Hmm. What most people wouldn't know is that H&M also has a venture arm. And as part of the venture arm, they invest in textile technology companies. Okay. Right? Which showcases the fact that the market is ready and waiting for good innovation, good disruption to happen. And if that is there, traction will so my okay. first advice is ki don't think twice. It's a large industry. Definitely go for it. And my second advice is that, you know, when you're thinking of starting something new or joining a existing business, like look at what BKLON is doing, right? A podcast and who would expect five years back ki a traditional textile company podcast, which also is a testament of the fact that textile companies are progressive and you can build whatever, look at our journey. I mean, we would have never expected even in the wildest dreams, we'll get this kind of attraction. this these kind of numbers that we get. So space is large, you know. Opportunity is large. Uh, sky is the limit. Textile applications everywhere. From a contact lens to airplane tires, everywhere, you know, there is a textile application. Look at technical texture is my massive category year on your right. So more the opportunity here as long as you have what it takes to build something, you know, or, or to, to kind of join your existing setup or your family business and kind of streamline it further. And there are many case studies of that, like many so many next generations have joined their existing family businesses in textiles and have grown the business massively right by branding the business by providing for a better customer experience by you know thinking differently
1: okay amazing so i mean that's a very good advice so i mean you know so people who are listening who are students who are discouraged with the 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 uh, the, the kind of industry it is just just don't think jump in it and there is a lot of potential so that is done now. I before I come on to my last question, I had one uh, question about. I mean, I know probably you deal most with Indian uh, textile companies, but you have studied abroad. Probably you are exposed to. Do you is like can you can you articulate how India Indian market is different from say a more mature market, say a US or Europe or Middle East? Uh, is there some clear distinctions do you see between uh, these markets? So,
0: you know, when we we started the podcast, you know, with uh, with the fact that you know this this thing has been needed for some time, or uh, yeah. if this would have happened two months earlier, and if you had asked me the same question, my answer would have been much different because okay. my exposure to textiles globally was very very low, like okay. it was at a very nascent stage. But last month I was traveling to Europe for business, we had the opportunity to be part of the European Parliament for two discussion on textile FTAs between India and Europe. That's why I okay. got an opportunity to meet with a lot of textile companies globally. Uh, a lot of manufacturing companies in the European, uh, mm. from Turkey, from Pakistan, like from different uh, countries. That's why I actually no different. In India, the face value is high, office, regularly, relationship driven. I realize that most of these international companies in textiles actually insist on that. They wouldn't do business if it's pure online or if you know there's no human element or there's no face value to it. So from that perspective, I think it's fairly similar. Uh, you know, they want to see who they're dealing with, they want to know the other person, they want to, you know, build that confidence by that face value. So in that sense, it's fairly similar. Again, some needs, hai, sabko price quality, or delivery ka combination, QCD a yeah. So hmm. it's fairly similar. Of course, you know every country will have its you know
1: a, a slight flavor which may differ, but at the crux of it, I think it's it's the same. Okay. So human behavior remains the same, and that means that how it works remains the more more or less the same. Okay. So now we're yes. coming to the last part of the podcast, and uh, you know obviously like I'm sure a lot of people are curious about this, so we should also touch upon it. Uh, let's come to. I hope it's not about that, Shark Tank. <laughs> I'm. Let's let's address the elephant in the room, man. You know, see what I want to know <laughs> is obviously we have seen the uh, seen Shark Tank. We know how popular it is, and you know, and there are a lot of memes and stuff like that that are made on it. And your episode also we have seen, and I I can tell you and I can vouch for it that your the clip uh, of your pitch was circ- being circulated in the entire textile industry, and you know everyone was watching it and everyone got to know. So it it was definitely a great marketing for the Yan Bazaar. But what I want to know is, uh, uh, before that, you know, how did you like thought of it? And how did you prepare for it? How did you prepare for the pitch? Were there other people involved? Was it your own decision? How did that came about?
0: You know, the best things in life are never planned. I agree. So, uh, to be very honest, I I mean, of course, I knew uh, Shakhtar coming to India because we were part of season one, you know, the, the first uh, run grew up watching Shark Tank US and I, I would say I'm like literally bent on Shark Tank US. I'm always being overwhelmed by it. And I think this is the second time in my life that this happened. Like when I would watch Shark Tank, I would never okay. imagine Shark Tank coming to India. And same while I was growing up, you know, being a huge Metallica fan, I would never imagine Metallica coming to India, which didn't happen in 2011. So, you know, it was a fantastic moment, similar you know, experience with Shark Tank. So when I realized and came to know that Shark Tank is coming to India, uh, it was a great moment, but I never felt the need of applying because if you look at any formats of Shark Tank globally, whether it's Dragon Zen in the UK, Shark Tank US or Australia or Canada, it's typically, uh, more encouraging for D2C brands or consumer facing brands. Like tech platforms, B2B businesses, mm-hmm. they are very yeah. hardware companies. Very of course, because ultimately it's a television show and, you know, a larger audience will not be able to relate to those kind of complex business models. Mm-hmm. Right, the relativity angle is not be there. So I had no intention of applying for it. Uh, a client of the Yan Bazaar, one of the early clients who then became a very, very close friend of mine, very dear friend of mine, uh, started uh, you know telling me about it, started, then you know they graduated to started nagging about it. then it became it came to a point where I had no other option but to just like apply so that he would shut up. Yeah, so the application hmm. just started with that. Again, no expectation, but I don't know how it happened. Maybe you know, we, uh, you know, God was very kind to us. Uh, we kept graduating to further rounds, further rounds, then the, you know, the sec- semi-final round, and then finally, we got to call it. We've been shortlisted. Now, uh, the day I'm supposed to walk into the tank and present to the sharks, uh, the you know, uske I felt nee because I had spoken to a couple of guys who pitched, and you know, they didn't have a as. Uh, as good experience, I would say, you know, because the kind of feedback they got was something that very difficult to handle on national television, you know, when you know that the world is watching you and then you, you, you know, you, the kind of reaction you're getting from from the Sharks is not that great. So that led to it plus a business model. So I had a few thoughts and I am like, I decided not to go. I called up the Shark Tank team. I said, I'm not coming and They were like, what's wrong with you? You know, why would you do that? Spoke to a VC friend of mine, of, you know, runs three large funds in India. Uh, you know, he again told me the same thing. What's wrong with you? You should definitely go this and that. So, you know, it was a very last minute thing. Again, never planned. Uh, just somehow I was still on the fence, but decided to go. Uh, went there and surprisingly for us, I think, you know, uh, we we got, we got a very good response, like very good response. And even after that, I can tell you, uh, I reached out to the Shark Tank team and I told them, please don't broadcast my episode, please. <laughs> like I don't want it out there. <laughs> Because my okay. pitch was very long, it was tiring. Of uh, course, hmm. I had a great time, you know, it was very fun interacting with all five of them. And, you know, the, I mean, you've seen a, you know, a summary of it in a 12 minute episode. So you can see how the back and forth is happening. But imagine that happening for like as long as 60 minutes. Hmm. So I find that, you it. Plus pitch, we'll convert uh, a television format mein convert ki, justification milega, and we'll get justification. And the audience won't understand. Because, I mean, it, the model is so complex. The questions they were asking were very technical. Right, uh, but I don't know, somewhere I was not confident, mm. so I requested them not to do it. But I think, you know, the, the way they've cut the episode right? the editing just turned out to be so great, so great. Correct. So definitely not planned, never expected this to happen and very lucky it did.
1: Was it nerve-wracking in the sense, were you nervous before the shoot or, or you probably didn't know that how big it will be or I mean, how was it the night before and the day of the shoot.
0: Well, not at all because, you know, uh, since since I grew up, you know, playing music and did a few live gigs also. So that confident element was always there. Uh, so, angle Like, if you look at my episode also, you know, it seems like we are having fun because I'm just standing there and I'm like, yeah, I'm just talking to five people, right? We pitched mm. to VCs before we entered the tank, right? We had certain commitments before we entered the tank. Correct. So even that... A conversation, you know, of interacting with a potential investor and how to hmm. deal with the, their questions and all. I think hmm. by the time you walked to the time, you we were very comfortable with with that line of questioning. Okay. So, if I remember out. the only thing that really stressed me out was the fact that I had to do the entire pitch in Hindi. Oh, and
1: okay.
0: Aisa ki hindi. Malab, I have a decent command on Hindi, but the thing is about business pitch, so the whole conversation in English. Hai, hmm. Correct. Usko hindi yeah. You can't you say B2B, you have to say business-to-business business because television audience do not understand you know, these slangs. You have to keep all things and making sure ki you end up you know, uh, saying phrases or slangs yeah, or English. That was slightly
1: difficult. And, and, and you were on your own also, so I'm sure that also put some pressure. So if I remember correctly uh, from the episode, uh, it was uh, Aman, Piusht, and Anupam that invested in your uh, startup. Uh, so how has joined. life? Ch- as well. So how has life changed? And if you can tell us post Shark Tank experience, you can choose to I mean say how whatever you feel is right for, on a public platform. So how has life changed? How has the interactions been with them? Has it really helped? Apart from the marketing that you definitely would have got from the show.
0: Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, I would have not realized the benefit of having uh, founders turned angels as investors because, you know, prior to the time, we were always looking for funds. Like we see funds, you know, large, uh, large investor groups, right? The venture capital funds just so for well there.
1: there.
0: Hmm. After that journey, we realized that when there is a founder who's backing your business, someone who's really being there done that, Built a large business line. Look at all of them. Whether it's Bharat Pay, and Boat, or Shadi.com, these are large category creators or large business in their segment. Uh, they come in with a very high empathy. So there is something called Ken, K E N, which stands for Knowledge Empathy Network. Right? The moment you have these kind of people, the Ken value is very very high, which really changed my entire perspective. Like it changed to you know such a great extent that the current round that we announced about two months back. I think exactly two months. Why we announced on 19 June our pre-series A. Mm-hmm. We made sure that we have a very high uh, entrepreneur-turned angel investor representation on the capital, because the problem-solving journey is very different. So although we mm-hmm. have a VC also on the capital, but there is a decent pool of you know these founders who have also backed us in this round. So that is the kind of impact that you know Shark Tank investment had on us.
1: Okay, and who, whose idea was it to move you to Bangalore? Was it your idea or was it Piyush or one of these guys? <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, uh, I mean the the start of this thought actually, you know, initiated by Piyush. Uh, my first meeting with him after the tank. Uh, my first meeting, right? And he's like, what hey, Mumbai you kya in ho? Bangalore." <laughs> so, that's how it started. Then, of course, we took some time. We tried to do it in Mumbai. Finally, it came to a stage where we
1: felt that, yeah, Mangalore is the right place for us to be. Okay. Okay, that's great. As a last thing. Before we go, if you can say something about uh, your relationship with BKLON and how, I mean, do you only know them because uh, of Yan Bazaar or have you heard about them uh, before Yan Bazaar? If you can just, you know, say a few things about uh, Beacon. I also saw, by the way, on your website, there is an article about polyester yarns and it does feature uh, BKLON as one of the top manufacturers in India.
0: To be, to be very honest, at the Yarn Bazaar, we've never interacted with anyone at BKLON. And that's very unfortunate because, you know, we, we should. But I have a very, very, uh, you know, uh, kind memory of BKLON. Because like I said, you know, with my father's business, I was a young kid. I remember once I walked into their office as a young kid with my father. And I remember that entire incident very well, that entire meeting and how it went. So in my father's business, being a fabric manufacturer, he would, there was a time when his core focus was on polyester filament segment. So, you were taking the clothes by text-by-text, you would have a lot of So Bikinon was one of our suppliers. And if I'm mm-hmm. not mistaken, we had a agent in between. And with that agent, I, Papa and that agent, we went to Bikinon's office. So yeah, I mean, I've always, I mean, uh, when the young brother started, my number one category that I wanted to focus on was polyester filament because family business, mm-hmm. mein polyester ka but again, you know, great things that I have time. We ended up starting with cotton category and polyester filament with a focus, but now we, are, we have a clear focus on you know starting uh, this segment also.
1: Okay, great. So, thank you, Prati. For being a part of this podcast, it was a lovely conversation and good to interact with a y- another young fellow who's from the textile industry. I mean, I've been doing uh, textile work since, you know, last 10 years and I've only interacted with, you know, you know uh, people who have spent years in this industry. And it has uh, been, let's just say, sometimes boring, sometimes interesting. So it was really, really fun uh, chatting with you and, you know, uh, all the best wishes in the world for Jan Bazaar. It's a great idea. Uh, the industry is absolutely ready for disruptions. When disruption. When I saw the Shark Tank episode, I mean, I was like, wow, okay. So there are people thinking about, you know, changing this industry. So uh, best of luck. And, you know, may Yan Bazaar reach wherever you want it to reach. And, you know, it outlasts you. Uh, and uh, good luck. And thank you again for being a part of this conversation.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for such kind wishes. And, you know, for having me here. Wonderful questions and getting, you know, a chance to, I mean, share the journey with the larger textual audience, which I'm hoping this platform would allow. So really, really, thank you so much for this.
1: Thank you so much. Hello, everyone. My name is Pratik Gadia. I'm the founder of The An Bazaar. I hope all of you watch the podcast
0: Spinning Values by BKLON. And I hope you guys like it. Do follow BKLON on all the social media handles. Great company, doing some great work. If you're a buyer or if you're a yarn buyer, buying a uh, of filament yarn, texturized yarn, do work with Bikilon. Again, a great company. And I hope you like the podcast.
1: Thank you so much.